0: This is Take Care, a health and wellness show produced by WRVO Public Media. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. Health and wellness
1: is a popular topic. We've seen this in producing Take Care and following other health-related news stories.
0: There are controversies, adjustments, and even reversals in health recommendations, and constant rethinking when new studies present evidence and statistics on what's working and what's not.
2: You're bombarded by high-sounding claims and glowing promises. For a while, it becomes a fad among people who try everything. And then suddenly its popularity starts to fade away. Perhaps medical reports indicate it may possess certain
1: drawbacks. Users find that it does not live up to its promises. We've attempted over the years to distill these stories, most recently with our latest in health segment, new and noteworthy developments in health and wellness that we share with you on each episode of Take Care.
0: For this show, we're bringing you several stories that fit into that category. Stories of screen time and brain development, financial health as wellness, and more.
1: But first, solving the most baffling medical mysteries. Diagnosis is a collection of stories from the New York Times Magazine's popular column of the same name. You may recognize it because it's also a Netflix original series.
0: Dr. Lisa Sanders is behind the diagnosis column. She's also an internist on the faculty of the Yale University School of Medicine. She's author of the book, Diagnosis, as well as Every Patient Tells a Story. So there seems to be quite the interest in medical mysteries at the moment. Other newspapers have started columns similar to yours, and there are other television shows too. Why do you think there's such an interest in the topic right now?
3: That's a really good question. I, I don't know that I'd ever thought about it. When I first started writing this column in 2002, I wrote it because I thought it was the most interesting story out there, and I still do. So I can only say that I guess other people agree with me. I think that there's a lot of interest in these mystery stories. Maybe because people hope that, you know, if they ever get sick, that somebody like the people in my columns will figure it out for them. But I think really it's just the satisfaction of a mystery story that comes together with that satisfying clunk at the end that I think really draws people in.
0: And like you said, it offers some hope for things that mystify us that can really have some serious consequences on health.
3: Yes, but, you know, most people are not the subject of extraordinary diagnoses. Most people have something regular and they are diagnosed easily. I don't think it's a very common problem, but I think that if it does happen to us, we want to know that we can get over it. Somebody will figure it out.
0: Right. And so for those who haven't read your column, can you describe how it works?
3: Yes, I tell the story of a patient who presents for medical attention with symptoms that are mystifying, either mystifying just to the patient or often mystifying to a whole string of doctors the patient has seen before she sees this particular doctor. And I'm really interested in how a doctor figures out a complicated problem. And so for me, having people who have missed it in the past is a way to indicate to my readers that this really is a complicated problem. So it always starts with the patient then goes more or less to the doctor, and then it always ends with figuring out what's going on. And usually, 99% of the time, the patient getting better and going on.
0: These cases that are very complicated, is it sometimes a misdiagnosis or more than one thing going on? What are the kinds of things that it ends up being the solution
3: I try to make sure that it is only one diagnosis, and often it's something that's unusual. It's either an unusual medical problem or it's a pretty common problem that presents in a different way. But for me, the issue is in some ways how mistakes are made and how we figure it out.
0: Do patients come to you because Maybe they can't get an accurate diagnosis where they are, you know, not everyone lives near a top-of-the-line medical center, or was there just sort of a lack of -of out-of-the-box thinking by a lot of clinicians?
3: Well, I don't solve most of the patients' stories that I write about. Usually they come to me, and what I ask for is solved cases, um, because there are doctors who are brilliantly figuring these things out everywhere. Fortunately, all I have to do most of the time is write about them. So I have the easy part.
0: So those patients have gone through a journey trying to find out what their diagnosis is.
3: Those patients and usually a doctor along with them. Although not always. Sometimes the diagnosis is made by a nurse or a nurse practitioner. All kinds of people can make a diagnosis. Sometimes the patient themselves will figure it out.
0: Has technology impacted people's ability to try to diagnose themselves?
3: We didn't have to wait for technology to try and diagnose ourselves. That has been something that we have participated in from the beginning. Before, there was the internet. There was our mother and our best friend and our spouses. I mean, routinely, well before you go to see a doctor, you ask everybody you know, hey, is this something I should be concerned about? What do you think this is? The internet is just the newest version of how we seek answers when our body isn't performing the way we're used to having it perform. I think it's a good way because uh, it makes available a lot of excellent information at your fingertips. What's bad is when you're asking your friends and your family, you know who is a little bit goofy, whose word you're not necessarily going to take, and who the reliable sources are. You just know that because they're part of, you know them. On the internet, as they used to say, nobody knows you're a dog. Behind the answer could be just about anybody. So I certainly encourage people to look for reliable sources. And how do you know a reliable source? Well, to be honest, for patients, I would say many reliable sources are the ones that end in .gov, .gov. You know, the NIH has some fantastic outlets for information. The CDC has some wonderful resources. If you don't know where it's coming from, then you don't know how reliable it is.
0: Is there, you know, a story that you can share with us that sticks out as symbolic of all the many stories you've told over the years?
3: Good Lord, um, you know, I mean, you know how it is when you're writing. Whatever you're working on, that very moment is the most interesting thing ever. Um, well, I'll tell you one where the disease wasn't a rare disease. I mean, I write about rare diseases often. I can't tell you how many times I've written about a pheochromocytoma, which you know, is extremely rare, but it's a really great disease. But a couple of years ago, I wrote about a woman who grew up in Kenya, came to the United States, has lived here since she was 15, and went back to Kenya with her two kids because she wanted them to see where she had grown up. She made sure that she and her children got the shots that were needed, took the prophylaxis for malaria, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do. But when she got back, she started to feel ill. She felt like she had a fever, and she felt like her heart was racing. So she went to see not her doctor, who was out of town, but a doctor in that practice, and she said, I think I have malaria, because I feel really bad, and I had malaria when I was a kid, and I think I felt just like this. And so if you see a patient with a fever within the first four to six weeks after returning from a place where malaria is endemic, like many parts of Africa, Well, then, malaria is very high on the list of things you might have. And so even without getting a test to see if she actually had malaria, that doctor treated her for it. She didn't get any better. And so that started what was basically a year of looking for an answer for why she felt so terrible. And she did feel terrible. Her heart was racing. She was hot all the time. She lost weight like crazy. She was having a hard time taking care of her children. And finally, she went to a lot of infectious diseases, doctors, and specialists who you know, were thinking, well, if it's not malaria, because she had many tests for malaria and they were never positive. If it's not malaria, what could she have picked up when she went home and brought back that we haven't been able to treat or find? She finally went back to her own doctor, her regular doctor, Dr. Maria Brown. And Dr. Brown, who knew her, noticed that her thyroid gland was very large, something that is very common in people to have what's called a goiter. But she happened to know that this woman didn't have a goiter. And so she diagnosed her with something that's very common, hyperthyroidism, an overactive thyroid, very common. And what was interesting to me about that is why did so many smart, thoughtful doctors get it wrong? I mean, really, she saw probably a dozen doctors in that year. And it's because how the question was framed really leads you towards an answer. And, you know, the patient accidentally triggered this malaria pathway so that everybody was so focused on that that they couldn't think about other possibilities. And that's one of the things that happens to human beings and doctors among them.
0: And you mentioned it took a year. You must see a lot of the toll that it takes on these patients and their families when they are going without a diagnosis for a a certain period of time.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, I recently completed a series of documentaries for Netflix about patients came to us because they were in search of a diagnosis. And I was interested in showing how the diagnostic process works and using something that I used in my Think Like a Doctor column, crowdsourcing, to see if we could come up with answers based on what lots of people thought, tapping the brains of a lot of smart people, as many smart people as we could find. That was an interesting experiment. I mean, it was eight really amazing stories of these patients and their families and their search for a diagnosis.
0: Is there anything you think that the medical profession needs to do as a whole to do better to diagnose rare diseases and conditions, or is this just something that, you know, medicine is as much an art as a science?
3: I do think that we can get better at this. One of the things that I am thinking these days, I didn't used to think this, but I wonder whether diagnosis itself should be a specialty. It used to be that people came to the doctor for acute problems. They got an infection or they broke their arm or you know, things that were time limited. You came in, you were sick, you got treated, you got better, you moved on. These days, most doctors see most patients because of chronic diseases, not a broken arm, but diabetes or high blood pressure, and because of that, What we've needed are specialists, are internists who know a lot about chronic diseases. We used to be specialist internists, people in internal medicine, used to be the person that you would go to when you had a mystery illness. You know, when your doctor couldn't figure you out, they would send you to an internist. Those days are over. Most internists are very well trained to take care of chronic diseases. Not so good... At necessarily, or they certainly haven't gotten a lot of training in how to think of the things that are off the beaten track. And we all know that the person who has seen a disease before is the person most likely to make a diagnosis of something that's unusual. So I think that maybe making diagnosis itself or difficult diagnoses themselves an area of specialty might be useful.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Dr. Lisa Sanders is an internist at the Yale University School of Medicine. She's author of the New York Times Magazine column Diagnosis and the book by the same name.
1: The idea of health has evolved over the decades. It's even evolved over the last couple of years. It's not just physical health anymore. It's also wellness, a concept that includes your mental health, happiness, and so much more.
2: There are two basic ways that you can be happy in this world. One, of course, is to have everything you want in just the way you want it and never have any difficulties or troubles. This method is ideal, perhaps, but not very probable. The other method would be to like anything that you got, no matter what it was.
0: But have you considered your finances to be part of that overall wellness picture? Our next guest might suggest that you do. Brett Wiesel is a lecturer in the business department of the borough of Manhattan Community College.
1: Wiesel is a former investment banker who writes about behavioral economics, decision-making, finance, and philosophy. Producer Leah Landry talked with him about financial health as wellness.
4: Thanks for being with us today, Brett.
1: I'm glad to be here, Leah.
4: So the idea of having a solid financial footing has really been around for quite some time, even if we didn't call it financial wellness. But has our perception of financial wellness over time changed?
2: Yes, I think our perceptions have changed as we've become more aware of the psychology of money, the cognitive biases that affect our financial decision making, and also the relationships among financial health, mental health, and physical health.
4: Are people generally more educated about their finances today? Maybe that's just because of modern society or technology. Would you say that's the case?
2: I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that it is the case that people are better educated today than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. In fact, relative to what we really need to know in the context of such a complex environment, we actually, I'm going to say, well, we know less.
4: Do you think interest in financial health, though, has changed at all, that maybe people are more interested in it just as our interest in overall wellness has increased?
2: Yes. I do think there is a trend towards being more aware of health, wellness, physical, psychological, et cetera, in the corporate setting and in the setting of higher education as well, I'll say. And I think that there's been a lot of interesting research out lately on the relationship between financial and physical mental health.
4: And part of that trend seems to be a connection between financial health and now understanding that that makes up at least part of our overall health. Why is it important to your health to be financially secure?
2: Well, it's important to our mental, physical health to be financially secure for, a, well, really a, a whole bunch of reasons, but I think one of them, just to start, is that if you're Feeling financially insecure, that can cause chronic stress, and chronic stress can have direct physical and mental health impacts as it causes this fight-or-flight reaction in an almost continuous way. These stress hormones can have negative effects on our, our bodies and our minds.
4: Many people might be thinking, sure, if you're financially well off, you don't have that stress. But how much of that feeling confident and maybe not having that stress is really to do with how much money you have versus just how much control you have over that money?
2: Yeah, I think you're right that it is important to feel that you have control in terms of your spending today, in terms of your ability to bounce back from unexpected expenses having the financial freedom to enjoy life and feeling like you're on track to meet your long-term goals. And, and it is not limited to folks who are with low and moderate incomes that I've spoken with folks with higher incomes who are also feeling challenged on those four dimensions.
4: So more about stress specifically that you mentioned chronic stress as well. It is well known that stress affects not just our mental health, but also our physical health. What do we know about that connection between financial issues and stress?
2: We know that there is some clearly strong correlations between financial stress and mental physical health issues such as ulcers, digestive issues, migraines, insomnia, high blood pressure, back and muscle tension, also anxiety, depression, etc. These are correlated and I think our understanding of this goes back to the 70s with some really interesting studies called the Whitehall studies which show that there is a pretty strong relationship between your your status in terms of whether you're a senior and making more money or a subordinate making a lot less money and how long you are likely to live.
4: That's incredible. And I want to go back a year or so to an article that you wrote in Forbes where you discuss some specific feedback loops. And that first one is about physical health. Um, how does Physically having stress because of financial situations, how does that lead to a feedback loop?
2: Yeah, so if you're feeling chronic stress, that can have some direct and indirect effects on your physical health. You know, in the situation where you're feeling stress over your tough financial situation, you've got those fight or flight hormones called adrenaline and cortisol, serotonin, some others that can suppress your immune system. Actually, it can suppress a, you know, a whole variety of different systems. And that can lead to health problems, including coronary heart disease and abnormal heart rates, abdominal fat, poor sleep patterns, memory and mood disruptions. And when you've got these health problems and you're in a country where you've got a trend towards high deductible health plans, these health issues can be very expensive. So you've got $1,000 dollars copays that you need to make in order to address these physical health issues that subtract from your financial health and then increase that stress even further. So it's a feedback loop that can get worse and worse unless you figure out a way to break out of that.
4: Right. And that's very similar to the loop that you identify with mental health. But the last one is uh, just slightly more complicated, but it is directly related to our overall wellness. So I want to mention that. You say that people, and we've heard these stories on NPR, especially lately, are actually delaying medical treatment because of their financial situation. Where's the feedback loop there?
2: Yeah. So there's a, a kind of an indirect feedback loop where you've got You've got financial stress that does cause health issues directly, but in addition can indirectly make health issues worse. So we know that 56% of people with chronic diseases delay care. Folks with high blood pressure, asthma, diabetes, congestive heart failure, et cetera, they'll delay care. and, And of course, that could make that physical health problem worse. And then the ultimate financial cost of dealing with those health issues could be worse. Again, increasing stress via the financial impact of that
4: how can individuals break out of those feedback loops? Or better yet, how can we make sure that we stay out of them altogether?
2: Well, I think it's a systemic problem. And I think it's really hard to ask individuals to solve that problem on their own. I think that it's up to our society and our government to address issues of inequality, education, lack of a substantial safety net, deregulation, and and health policy that does not address the issues that we all are facing. I think we can, as individuals, we can look to our employers for supports and programs to build our financial health and reduce the income volatility that many of us are experiencing. And then finally, you know, as individuals, I think we can take political action. We can focus on our attitudes and behaviors that are causing our financial and and other aspects of health to worsen. And we can work on doing things like building an emergency fund that can reduce the risk that we have of not being able to bounce back from unexpected expenses.
4: I think about how things have changed even over the last 15 years. I took a finance class in high school where you learned how to balance a checkbook and now there are apps that are directly correlated with your bank account that tells you how much money you're spending on food and entertainment and bills, housing. Do you think that there is a positive trend that maybe technology or these other things that people are using now can help us make better financial decisions even if maybe that trend isn't playing out in people's bank accounts?
2: Yeah, I think if there were a clear positive trend in that respect that we would be seeing some evidence in people's bank accounts, but we're not. I really think that it's a mixed bag. We worked on our own financial wellness app, and as a result of doing that, we did survey what's out there. And I I really think some apps are really helpful, and some are really there just to drive sales of financial products and services that you may or may not need. The consumer has to navigate that somehow and and that's a challenge.
4: In your opinion is financial wellness a universal need?
2: Yes, absolutely. Financial wellness is a universal need and I think that the need is even more acute in countries where the safety net isn't as strong, <laughs> you know, for example, in the United States, I'd say and where the educational system and and other aspects of society lead to significant inequalities.
4: You mentioned high-deductible health care plans. Do you see any changes maybe in what candidates are talking about heading into the election that could take some of that financial pressure off of those who could be struggling?
2: Gosh, I hope so. We've seen that the percentage of people who report difficulty paying for medical care has gone from 15% 15% for folks with high deductible plans versus 10% nationwide. Healthcare reforms that reduce deductibles, that reduce the risks of bankruptcy and financial distress because of health issues, are going to have enormous benefits, not just to the people who no longer have to worry about this, but to society as a whole.
4: Thanks so much for being with us on Take Care. Thanks for having me, Leon. That was producer Leah Landry speaking with Brett Weisel,
0: lecturer in the business department of the borough of Manhattan Community College. He's also co-founder of Decision Fish, LLC. You can find some of his work on finance, philosophy, and more at Forbes.com.
1: take a short break here, but stay with us. The latest research on childhood brain development as it relates to media use is next.
0: We'll ask about the recent study published in JAMA Pediatrics about childhood screen use and more. You're listening to Take Care on WRVO.
1: This is Take Care. Thanks for joining us for a discussion on health and wellness. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Katherine Loper.
4: How do you like that? We're going to see television tonight, after all. And a travelogue. I love travelogues. Me, too.
5: Fred, can't you get a better picture?
4: Well, how's this?
5: Fred, that's fine. Yeah, Yeah, Dad, that's fine. Gee, I... I wonder what that building is they're showing. The
3: Taj Mahal. Oh, thank
0: you. (laughs) A recent study published in JAMA Pediatrics indicated that screen use is tied to children's brain development and not for the better. In the study, preschoolers who use screens less had better language skills than their peers.
1: This raised some red flags for a lot of parents, obviously, but also a lot of researchers and doctors in the field of childhood development. Childhood screen use, at least at the scale we see it today, is a fairly new phenomenon.
0: And that means we're just now beginning to learn the impact of cell phones, tablets, and other screens on childhood development.
1: In order to gain a better understanding of the topic, we reached out to the director of the Center on Media and Child Health, Dr. Michael Rich.
0: Dr. Rich is also director of the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders and associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rich. Thank you for having me. We've been studying the development of the human brain for a while, but now scientists are looking at how modern technology impacts children's brains. But can we start with just sort of layman's terms about what we know about how the brain develops early on and why that childhood, Baby time is so crucial.
6: Well, the interesting thing about all of this is that one of the reasons we end up with arguably the most sophisticated brain in the animal kingdom is that we are born with embryonic brains. Every other animal has primitive reflexes that allow them to survive, to find food, to find shelter, to stay warm. But human babies are utterly helpless. They need parents, they need others around them to keep them warm, to feed them, for them to survive. But what that allows us to do is to build our brains in response to the challenges and stimuli of the environment we're in. And we're born with all the neurons we're ever going to get. So the process of brain building is really synaptic connections, connections between those neurons. And those connections that are used again and again are reinforced. Those connections that are not used so much are actually pruned away. Why would one want to knock off connections? Because that improves our signal-to-noise ratio so that we can go from the primitive startle reflex when we hear any noise to understanding that this noise is mommy's voice, and that's a good thing. So... The first three years or so of life are really critical. The brain triples in volume because of these synaptic connections in the first two years. So this is very critical that the stimulus and challenges that they get during those two years and frankly throughout our lives are the kinds of challenges that we will need to build creative, flexible, resilient brains.
0: And focusing
6: in on language ability, how and when is that developed in a child's brain? Frankly, language starts very, very early on. We do know that learning that happens in the first few months of life, the first nine months or so of life, in terms of phonemes, are very, very critical what we hear and how we interpret that. And that as we grow older, we grow less able to really hear the sounds, the music. And so, in fact, what we're seeing is that when babies sign with very simple hand signals, they actually develop language structures even earlier than when they start babbling. So we're still learning an awful lot about language acquisition. But what we do know is that it is essential to communicate with the child by whatever means, as early as possible, first with signing and certainly with talking to them from the beginning, so they get used to hearing the sounds and understanding the meanings as they build their brains around it.
0: We're really just beginning to learn about how modern technology can impact the development of children's brains. There's one recent study that folks did on screen time and language development in children. What do we know about that?
6: Well, we're just starting to learn about this, but what we're learning is a little concerning in terms of the fact that what we're seeing in that study in particular is that kids who have more screen time as opposed to kids who have more talk time, interaction time, actually have slower and poorer language acquisition, which in a sense, it makes sense because When you are talked to by a human being, by mommy, by daddy, by sibling, you're getting a whole lot more than just the sounds that are coming out of that box, whether it be television or a computer. I think that we have to take a step back and say, What is the whole experience of communication? What is the whole experience of language? And understand also that while that sound coming out of the television or out of the computer will in later years be understood to be an analog of mommy's voice or of grandma's voice, in the earliest years it's not. It doesn't have any kind of social capital, if you will, in terms of connecting it with another human being. That's really
0: interesting. Is it as simple as use screens less and that'll help a child with their language
6: skills later on, or or is it more complicated than that? It's more complicated than that. We need to understand at what stages and ages kids are able to decode the information they're being given. For example, for a long time, we who studied this felt that under the age of two, no screen time was the best thing for young people. But now that we've come into the age of video calling, what we've realized is that, in fact, younger ages of kids can actually respond to, say, grandma on the tablet, but only if they've met grandma in real life first.
0: Wow. So, I mean, I think we could take that further and say it's not just about how much screen time, but is it also about the type of screen time or the type of content
6: they're watching or listening to? absolutely it's not about duration it's about content and context in which it's used and so there's also a difference between an 18 month old interacting with grandma on the tablet and an 18 month old watching a video on that tablet which is a much less rich experience and is that because it's less
0: interactive if you're having a you know a video chat versus just watching video there's an interactivity
6: There's interactivity, but one could also argue that there's interactivity with websites, with video games, et cetera. It's the quality of the interactivity. It is with whom that interactivity occurs that matters. And the one place I should say that the duration of screen time matters is that it's displacing something else. And when there is a richer experience that it's displacing, the duration is a negative. So the tendency to put a child in front of a screen instead of letting them cook with you when you're trying to get a meal on the table is a relatively impoverished experience. And so our tendency to use screens to distract or babysit the child when we are trying to get other things done is actually a detriment to their brain development, not just their language development, but their ability to synthesize and decode and understand the world, the way they fit in the world, and how to behave in it. Well, let's talk about what are some of the positive
0: things parents and all of us who interact with young children can do to help children
6: develop language skills. Talk to them. (laughs) And even more importantly, perhaps, listen to them. The ways we can do that is singing with them, playing games with them, interacting with them, and giving meaning, giving a solid component to that communication. Ultimately, what they want from us more than anything else is our attention and our care. And so how do we communicate that to them in ways that allow them to build their sense of themselves and their sense of their place in the world in relation both to the individual who's interacting with them, but to the larger world as well.
0: And is that sense of self important for the ability to have a back-and-forth conversation? I would think,
6: not being an expert, obviously, that some of that confidence really plays into it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one thing for a child to understand language and even understand how to communicate with language. It's a whole other thing for them to understand that they have a voice and that that voice is valuable and needs to be heard, and they have every right to be heard.
0: Moving on from conversations and talking to babies and toddlers, when the children get to a reading age, how does all that early interaction impact their literacy and ability to
6: read later on? Reading starts very early with reading to them. It's about the talking and singing, but it's also reading to them. And reading, particularly in the earliest years, is as much about affection and nurturing as it is about reading. So you sit in mommy's lap, mommy holds you, mommy shows you the pictures in the book as she reads the story. It moves from a very social interaction, which is very similar to mommy just talking to me, into an understanding that in that book are codes for stories, for adventures, for imagination, And so it gives value, it gives gravitas to that book, and it makes you want to start to decode that for yourself. So much has been said about screens, but is there something almost like
0: addictive about screens for children that could also be of concern to their development?
6: Absolutely. Although in our work with kids who have issues with screens, we don't use the word addiction or addictive for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the stigmatizing effect of the word that we think of junkies or bums on skid row when we think of addicts. We don't think of our child who's playing Fortnite or watching endless videos. But quite frankly, many, if not all of these interactive devices and applications are designed to draw kids in, engage them, and keep engaging them because that's, you know, how they make their money. So the part of this that appears to be addictive is really something that can be controlled if the parent, in introducing these and using these with the children, helps the child learn that these are activities that are to be regulated, first by the parent in terms of limiting the time, but gradually over time helping the child self-limit. And that these are experiences and activities that need to be used when they're needed and are to be put aside for other diverse experiences when they're not needed. Because the other problem with these screens often, at least in the way we behave with them, is it's very easy for them to become our default behavior. And that's the case with adults as well. So we need to be conscious of our use of these devices and to respect ourselves our time, and our attention enough to place those things where they do us the best.
0: And as we started, we said, you know, we're just beginning to learn about how screens and technology affect child's brain development. What are you going to be looking to in the future? What should we be studying? And what are you most concerned about?
6: What I'm most concerned about is if we go back to what we were first talking about, about how we build our brains from embryonic brains with synaptic connections that are reinforced or pruned away depending on how we use them, is that when you compare what we know to be really helpful to building young brains, that being interacting with other human beings, acting on our physical environment like stacking blocks up, an open-ended, creative, problem-solving type of play, you realize that screens are relatively impoverished in all of those areas. So while they try to present analogs of those, they're relatively attenuated compared to real-life interaction with human beings or physical activity. To take a step back from that, we're saying... Are we setting up a situation where that relatively impoverished environment will allow those synaptic connections certainly not to get reinforced as strongly, but possibly even get pruned away? The other piece of it is, are we training these kids to live in a world of screens and being increasingly disconnected from other human beings because that near-infinite connectivity of the screen is enough. And I think we have to think about this quite seriously and make conscious choices. Is this as good or a better choice? Or should we take a step back and say, I'm giving up too much in terms of not just the development of the individual, but the development of our society?
0: Well, I think this is certainly a topic we will need to keep revisiting in the future. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Rich. Thank you. Dr. Michael Rich is director of the Center on Media and Child Health and a professor of pediatrics. You can find him online at askthemediatrician.org.
1: More colleges have signed on to a program at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse that allows students straight out of high school to declare plans to go to medical school. As Alan Abbott reports, it's an emerging trend that helps students know at an early age that they want to be a doctor.
5: The SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, Syracuse University, and Spelman College are joining 11 schools already in Upstate's Accelerated Scholars Program. Crystal Ripa, Director of Special Admissions Programs at Upstate, says it allows high school students to simultaneously apply to medical school while also applying for undergraduate admission. There is a what's called a 4 plus 4, so students spend the traditional 4 years at SU and then come to Upstate for 4 years of medical school. There's also a 3 plus 4 option. Lauren Hunter, Director of Pre-Health Advising at SU, says she knows high school students who are ready to make a medical school dream come true true, determining who those students are means looking at more than grades. Something else that we're looking for is that knowledge of, I know what I'm getting into, right? I've been in a hospital environment, let's say. There are several reasons why this kind of early acceptance is attractive. For one thing, RIPA says applicants don't have to take the MCAT, short for Medical College Admission Test. That is a huge, huge, huge component of a lot of anxiety and stress for those who are aspiring to be doctors. Applying to medical school can cost between three and five thousand dollars alone. What do the schools get out of it? One thing RIPA says is a more diverse student body.
4: We have some
5: typical theaters have always been like Binghamton and Cornell and we have so many no additional theater schools. And Hunter notes it lowers the age of students going to medical school. The average age of first year medical school students is about twenty five right now. In response to that rising age of first-year med students, people are rightly saying, hey, we need to get this going sooner. Hunter says the proximity between SU and Upstate is very special. She's most excited about how this program will really be attractive to Central New Yorkers who want to make Syracuse University and Upstate the heart of their medical education. It's been their dream to go to Upstate, to stay here, to be a local physician, right, to help their community, and for them, this is their dream. For Take Care, I'm Ellen Abbott.
0: We turn now to a very specific kind of health
5: care coverage. They're
0: called health care sharing ministries, and they're in the news lately because insurance regulators say some of them, a couple of specific companies based in Georgia, are violating state and federal requirements.
1: The companies are allegedly failing to make their religious affiliations clear, and they're
0: selling health insurance plans outside of the markets they should be. Joining us to talk more about this is Todd Bookman, a reporter with New Hampshire Public Radio, who has covered this issue. First, the
7: history of healthcare sharing ministries. Healthcare sharing ministries have been around for decades. They are essentially rooted in Christian communities of faith. This central idea that people should help each other in times of need. So how does that relate to healthcare? Well, Members of healthcare sharing ministries essentially pay monthly premiums with the expectation that that money will be shared amongst all the members when a medical bill arises. These ministries operate in a very different way than your traditional healthcare plan. Ministries function in different ways. In some ministries, the members actually mail their monthly premium checks to other members who have had healthcare bills and those bills have been approved. Other healthcare sharing ministries kind of function with this central clearinghouse. So you mail your premium check-in each month, and then when you have a medical bill, you sort of request payment from the central clearinghouse. It's different than what we think of as traditional health insurance, and most of these ministries have that disclaimer right there on their website. One of the huge differences is there's really no guarantee of coverage. These entities are exempt from regulations that apply to other health insurance companies, including the no ban on pre-existing conditions. That's just sort of one of the, the main things that they are exempt from.
0: And it's not just pre-existing conditions where these providers stray from the norm. Members often have to pledge to abstain from drinking or smoking, for example. And generally speaking, ministries don't cover abortion. Prices for
1: these kind of programs are also much
0: lower than traditional coverage.
1: Bookman says in some cases, from one-third to one-half the cost of a plan you'd find on your state health exchange. And for some, health sharing ministries make a lot of sense, especially
7: if your Christian faith is a big part of your life. No coverage of abortion certainly appeals to certain members. And I think there's also sort of a feeling of community that can be created with these ministries. I spoke with somebody who's been a, a member of a ministry since the 1990s. And when he has filed for health care bills, he's actually received notes from other members, people saying, oh, we are praying for you in your time. And he's sent similar notes to other members when they have had health challenges. So there's certainly more of a feeling of community than you would get signing up for Blue Cross Blue Shield.
0: Not only are these ministries popular, but they're gaining
7: in popularity across the country. With figures, we need to be a little bit careful simply because there is no real regulation of these entities, so it's hard to have exact figures. There is an industry group that has released some statistics. They estimate there are roughly 100 different healthcare sharing ministries nationwide, covering approximately 1 million members nationwide. And those numbers have likely gone up since the signing of the Affordable Care Act. When the Affordable Care Act was signed, there was an exemption carved out. The individual mandate did not apply to people who received coverage through a health care sharing ministry. So that was certainly seen as a boost to the ministries as well in terms of fueling their their numbers.
0: If it's not already clear, these health care sharing ministries operate in a very different way. Those who are members and have been members for years can get good coverage if they're educated about the plans and in some cases willing to do a bit more
7: legwork. One of the satisfied customers I spoke with said, you need to go in knowing what will be covered and what won't be covered. This gentleman that I spoke with says, you know, he would not put in for, let's say, a mammogram for his wife. He knew that expenses like that he should be prepared to pay for out of pocket. The savings he received on the front end, the lower payments... He essentially booked that money for himself, knowing that if these minor health care or regular checkups came up, that he would be funding those out of pocket. He says you really just need to be in a, a sort of an astute user of the healthcare care system. You have to be able to negotiate with your health care provider. You have to be willing to reject you know, certain charges and really uh, take, say, a hospital to task for certain bills. And so, if you can go in with that mindset, knowing that you really need to follow the healthcare system closely if you're going to use a ministry, for those members, these appear to be smart ways for them to go about providing some sort of healthcare. I, it, I hesitate to call it insurance because this is not healthcare insurance, but it is a program and it is a way for people to have their medical bills covered.
1: Circling back to why we wanted to look into these healthcare sharing ministries, they've come up in the news lately in New Hampshire, where Bookman is based, and in other states
7: where a few of them have been banned. The bans really apply to two entities, Alira and Trinity. So Alira is a for-profit company. It was founded in 2015. Trinity is a non-profit founded in 2018. And these two entities, they are legally distinct entities, though we should note there appears to be some clear relation between them. they rent office space from each other. They're both based in Georgia. Trinity functions as a healthcare sharing ministry, and it's come under scrutiny along with Alira, this for-profit entity that does the marketing and kind of administrative work on Trinity's behalf, because some regulators say they are not following the few regulations that are in place. In May of this year, regulators in Texas, they filed an action to stop Elira and Trinity from offering products in that state. A week later, Washington state filed suit. Colorado has taken regulatory action. And then in New Hampshire in late October, our state's insurance department filed a cease and desist order. And as for the allegations made in New Hampshire? There are three main allegations that our insurance department is making. One is that under New Hampshire state law for these healthcare-sharing ministries to operate, they must have been formed before December 31st, 1999. We know that Trinity was formed in 2018. Another allegation is that these ministries, they need to clearly establish that they're faith-based organizations, and the state insurance department is alleging that Trinity and Alira that their marketing materials don't make that clear enough. And then there's a third point to the cease and desist order here in New Hampshire, which has to do with offering the coverage to groups instead of just in the individual market.
1: So while there are healthcare sharing ministries that are operating without any problems, these two companies
7: aren't helping the cause of similar healthcare options. Absolutely. And I spoke with somebody with an industry group who said in sort of no uncertain terms that Alira and Trinity are giving the industry at whole a black eye, that they are casting a lot of unwanted attention on healthcare sharing ministries, you kind of got the sense that the old established healthcare sharing ministries seeing a new player who is attempting to operate in this space and doing so in what some would say is a questionable way. So yes, there are healthcare sharing ministries that operate with little or no complaints or scrutiny, at least according to regulators here in New Hampshire. And then there's this Elira Trinity institution which has received or generated, I should say, dozens of complaints to the New Hampshire Insurance Department about their practices from consumers here in the state. So what will these legal battles mean for the future of healthcare sharing ministries? That's still up in the air. Alira and Trinity, at least in New Hampshire, are vigorously defending themselves and have requested an appeal and certainly could prevail. They could win in front of a hearing officer that know they are not violating any state laws and that they should be able to continue offering their services. There has been a steady trickle of news coverage of these healthcare sharing ministries, specifically Alira and Trinity, over the past year or so. But I still think these aren't household names. And so if consumers are interested in in signing up for a healthcare sharing ministry, they may not know what to be looking for in those ministries. So I think probably best for everybody, <laughs> like they do in everything, to do their homework before signing up for anything like this. That's the latest in health
1: this week on Take Care. You can follow more of Todd Bookman's reporting on healthcare sharing ministries at nhpr.org.
0: If you missed any part of today's show, you can find it online at wrvo.org and wherever you download podcasts. This episode and others are available on the web as well as on iTunes.
1: Take Care is a production of WRVO Public Media. Our team includes myself, Jason Smith, Catherine Loper, Mark Lavonier, and Leah Landry. Mark also wrote and performed the theme music you hear throughout each show.
0: If you have questions or comments, suggestions for future shows, email us at takecare at wrvo.org. Support for Take Care comes from the Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. Thanks for being with us for Take Care.